it's not every day that we have the first day of the first week <laughs> of the first year to gather together in worship. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. Happy 2023. <laughs> amen to that. Amazing. I'm excited for what God will do this year. Are you excited? I'm excited. There are so many things that God can do for this year. And I'm excited for the possibilities, endless possibilities God will do for this year. Uh, speaking of endless possibilities, there are, um, we're anticipating that we will not just grow in number, but we will grow spiritually this year. We, we have been in a constant diet of, of preaching from the Old Testament to the Revelation this uh, last year. <laughs> it's new to me. Last year. And now we are doing Samuel as a new series. So we're starting today the whole new series from the book of Samuel. Now, if you may ask, why are we doing the book of Samuel? Because we believe that the Old Testament and the New Testament are both words of God. And they are equally important to us. Uh, may I remind you that the Old Testament is the Bible that Jesus read. This is our, Christ our Christian heritage. This is the basis of Jesus' preaching. And so we are preaching also from the Old Testament. It's not really that old, old, but in terms of having divisions from the Bible, so we have Old and New Testament. But both are words of God, if, if the, is anything we can say about that. And that is all the more the reason to study the Word of God. Um, again, let me set this up for you. Uh, every night, um, I would read story to my, my daughter, and I would always begin with by saying, once upon a time. And she would catch it. And sometimes she would do it. Dad, may I do the story? And she would say, once upon a time. <laughs> so once upon a time, Israel settled in the land of promise, but then Moses and Joshua died. And when they died, the nation of Israel forgot Yahweh. They turned to idolatry and broke their covenant. And when this, this happened, according to the covenant provisions, they incur curses. See, in the book of Deuteronomy, there are blessings and curses. And the nation of Israel promised themselves that they will be faithful to God. And if they will not be faithful to God, they will be cursed. And so when they turned away from God, they were cursed. And in so doing, God relaxed his protection on the nation of Israel, and he allowed the neighboring countries to attack and overpower the nation of Israel. And instantly, the nation realizes we're in trouble. And so they turned back to God and asked for forgiveness. And in so doing, God raises judges slash warriors slash redeemers to redeem and deliver the people of Israel from oppression and restore his favor once again. This is the story of the nation of Israel up to the point of the judges. So if you read in the Old Testament, you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua judges, that is the point where Israel has been turning away from God and res being restored to God at the same time. Well, this did that, ha did that happen one time. In fact, there was a long period of time where Israel acted like juveniles, you know. They would act like juvenile constantly in rebellion against God and unable to keep their act together. But God, on the other hand, was acting like a parent 
always snagging the people of Israel, reminding them of who they are and their calling, reminding them to come back to God. So the book of Judges, although it's a very short book, it's a very long period. It's about 450 years of the people of Israel in a cycle of rebellion, correction, and restoration. And I think this is as much a story of us as the people of Israel. If you're reading newspaper, there's a, a section where it's called editorial. It's a commentary of what's happening in the current time. The book of Judges, at the very end of this book, there's a summary, sort of a commentary of what happened in the book of Judges for 450 years. Listen to Judges 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, that's 450 years, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That means for 450 years, Israel was in constant rebellion against God. For 450 years, in those days, there was no king and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Now, this passage tells us not only the political landscape of what's happening in Israel, but also their spiritual condition. It almost sounds like the woke culture in the last five years. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. By the way, this is nothing new because in the 1960s, shout out to those who were born before 1960s. Woohoo! No one, no one. Okay, that's cool, that's cool. But in the 1960s, there's what we call the hippie culture. There's what we call the Woodstock that happened three days of music, drugs, and sex. Anyone knows that? You must know that. This Woodstock culture is a hippie culture, is a counterculture. Because what's happening during that time was an aversion to the war in Vietnam. Now, this was a defiance against the structure that was happening during their time. Now, specifically against the machinery of war. But it advocated freedom, sex, and drugs. Now, fast forward to year, this year. 2020, 21, 22, and now 23. We have the CRT, the critical race theory, or the cancel culture, which is nothing but, again, a counterculture against the perceived injustice on race and gender. The focus is race and gender. But both of these movements are nothing but a short-sighted attempt to restore wholeness because we understand that this world is broken. And so both movements are an attempt to restore the brokenness, to restore wholeness in our system. But we know better. Only God can bring wholeness. There's a word for that that the Jews use. They call it shalom. Shalom is not peace. Shalom is wholeness. Shalom, shalom is restoring wholeness to brokenness. That is shalom. See, in the 1960s, the world was looking for peace. Today, we're looking for social justice. But the truth is that only the God who rules the kingdom has the ability to bring growth. Someone say amen to that. Thank you. <laughs> In fact, the very reason, I think, for Christmas, the very reason Jesus came as king was to usher peace and shalom, wholeness, to right the wrongs of the past, to forgive the sins that alienate, alienate us from God. But the reality is that the world that we live in right now is like the world of the judges. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And they 
like any others, do not recognize that there is only one true king today. When Jesus was born, Herod tried to kill him. When Jesus Christ announced his kingship, the Roman establishment executed him. And even until now, the people still reject Jesus as king. Now, even in this climate of rebellion, God works in mysterious ways. During the time of the judges, for 450 years, when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, God was working mysteriously in an individual. While everything seems to be in chaos, a couple would go to Shiloh to worship God. Listen to 1 Samuel chapter 1, the first five verses. Here it goes. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Sophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Now, Elkanah means possessed of God. The son of Jehoram, Jeroham, son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, son of Zuf, Ephrathite. Now, this may not sound like a, you know, cute names, but these are Hebrew names because they have meanings. That's why. Ephrathite. Ephrathite means abundance, but interesting. So this guy, by the name of Elkanah, possessed by God, lives in an abundant place. It says he had two wives. Now, there's a, a whole lot of explanation why he had two wives, but that means he's rich in their time. The name of the one was Hannah. Hannah means grace. I hope Hannah knows this. Yes, Hannah means grace. And the name of the other is Penina. Jewel. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And, and here's like telling us, you know, the story is telling us, watch out. There's something in here. Hannah has no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Now, before the temple was placed in Jerusalem, it was placed in Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now, again, there's a short commentary about these two priests, Hophni and Phinehas. Later on, if you read the book of Samuel, you will find that these priests, both Hophni and Phinehas, are corrupt priests. Now, do not start thinking about the politicians today. But these are different. Hophni and Phinehas are priests of the Lord. They're corrupt. They're doing a lot of bad things in the temple. And yet, they were priests of the Lord. It says, on the, the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Now, this is a very interesting story to begin with. Because the story of the kingdom now zeroes in from the book of the Judges to all the people that is doing what was right in their own eyes to the story of a single couple, Elkanah, Hannah, and Penina. And if you read closely, you will almost hear a faint echo of the story of Jacob, whose wife is Rachel, who is also barren, who cannot bear children. You remember Jacob and Rachel? Now, Jacob loved Rachel. But he was tricked by his father-in-law, so he married the sister of Rachel, Leah, first. But he loved Rachel more, but then Rachel was barren. So in this story of Hannah and Elkanah, you will hear the story of Jacob and Rachel. Watch the words carefully because it says, because the Lord had closed her womb. There's a sort of a commentary of what's happening here. Now, everything is going on good 
But then suddenly, there's a, this commentary at the very bottom where it says, the Lord had closed her womb. It's, it sounds like intentional for a reason. Now, almost providentially, you would think that God is about to do something through Hannah. Now, why did I say that? Because when you read the Bible and you flip the first pages of the Bible, you read Adam and Eve, and there it says in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived and bore Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man with the help of God or help of the Lord. Now, this statement is a statement that leads to other stories, and it tells us that God is involved in the mandate to go and multiply. Now, beginning, if you read Genesis, beginning from that in creation, God was telling people to go and multiply, go and multiply, go and multiply. And they take it seriously. But the ability to go and multiply still rests on God because sometimes God closes the womb of the woman and therefore she cannot bear go and multiply. The Bible presents the understanding that bearing children is always with the help of God. So no later in Genesis, you will find Abraham and Sarah. Sarah was barren, but God helped Sarah. She got pregnant. But then Isaac and Rebekah, Rebekah was also pregnant. God helped Rebekah, not Rebekah Barrera. Okay, let, let me be clear. Rebekah's still single. Isaac and Rebekah, they had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob had difficulty also, Jacob and Rachel. Apparently, when you look at the story, it seems like that there's a repetition of the story going around. And then you would begin to ask, what is this barrenness doing here in the story? Why is this repeated in the lives of the characters in the story? Now, these women, just like Hannah, believe that bearing children fulfills their womanhood. Which means without bearing children, the mandate to go and multiply won't make sense. So we are given the impression that although God commands these people to go and multiply, the ability to bear children and fulfill their calling is still up to God. And then suddenly, Israel became a nation. From Egypt, God rescued them and then sent them all the way to the promised land. But once they stepped in the promised land, Israel started their spiritual decline. And again, the book of the Judges said, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But here comes, of all the people, here comes this faithful and barren woman knocking on heaven's door, pleading for God to intervene. She understood that bearing children and dedicating him to God was her counterculture defiance. All the people are doing what was right in their own eyes, but she wanted to follow God. She understood. When Israel was acting in contravention to God's will, she went against the grain. She wanted to follow God. She wanted to bear children. She wanted to raise a godly child. Because to her, bearing children was her contribution to the kingdom of God. As simple as that. So Hannah went to the temple. He poured out her soul to God. And listen carefully to this passage, verses 9 up to 11. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She was, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look at the affliction of your servant, 
and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. It sounds like a very innocent prayer of Hannah, but this is not a random and personal prayer from an insignificant woman. Listen to this passage that yes, it echoes the beginning of the story of Exodus. The way Hannah prays is how Moses begins the story of Exodus. Pay attention to the words bitterly, affliction, and remember. Hannah was asking God, remember me. Do not forget me. She was weeping bitterly, and she was telling God of her affliction. Now listen to Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned, that's weeping bitterly, because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So think of Hannah and the nation of Israel both weeping bitterly, asking God for redemption. Going back to Hannah, verse 19. And they rose early in the morning, worshipped the Lord, and they went back to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew, his, knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Same thing in Exodus. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Shamuel, or Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Listen to Exodus 24. God heard their groaning. And God remembered this covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. What's happening here is that if you put these verses side by side, you will find an uncanny resemblance. It's like a repetition of the story. If you read the book of Exodus and you read the book of Samuel side by side, you see the same story with just different characters. Israel, just like Hannah, was praying to God, and God remembered his covenant. So that means this story is not just the story of Israel or Hannah. This is the story of God. This is the story of how God rules the kingdom. What this means is God is involved in the life of the nation and the lives of individuals. Not only in Israel, not only in Hannah, but in everything. Now, funny but sometimes, because we think that God is too busy with, with hearing our individual prayers, or that God is more preoccupied with the things that have national issues. And so sometimes, it stops us from, from praying. It stops us from telling God our concern. Because we think sometimes that God is only concerned with the big things, or God is busy with the big things. Oh, no. God is as much as busy with the big things as to our individual lives. Can I hear an amen to that? See, here in Hannah, God was, was intervening in her life. Listen, God is as much as interested and involved in what's happening around the world as what's happening in your personal life. And so if you are praying for something, if you have a struggle in life, do not think that God is not interested. If God is interested, if, see, this is the beauty of our prayer. When Jesus tells us to pray, may his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It involves both the national issues and our personal issues. Because, because after that, 
He tells us to, to pray, give us our daily bread. Daily bread is not a national issue. Victory from temptation is not a national issue. And yet, Jesus teaches us to pray that. Why? Because he is involved in our personal lives. Do not believe in the lie that God doesn't care about you personally. This is the reason why Jesus taught us to pray. Give us our, our, give us our daily bread, our personal debts, our victory over temptations. These are as, as important as his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does God care about our personal things, about our little random personal issues in life? I believe so. Why did I say that? Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Jesus said, Or which one of you, his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I mean, these are mundane things. The context is not world peace. The context is about daily bread, clothing, and shelter. God is interested in those things. The things that we need on a daily basis. I believe that God is not too busy to hear out whatever you want to tell him personally. Because he is involved in world affairs as he is involved in our personal lives. There's a constant battle to believe and to trust God who cares for us deeply. To say that God loves us is not a cliche. It is not just a, a good line for poetry. When John said, for God so loved the world, it really means something. It's pregnant with meaning. It's meaningful. The statement has meaning. And we best understood its meaning when the very representative of God, the embodiment of Yahweh, Jesus the Son of God, voluntarily stepped in while Barabbas, another son of the Father, stepped out. That's how God demonstrated his love. It's not just a statement that has no meaning. When God said, for God so loved the world, it has meaning. This, this season... I would say, although it's Christmas season, it's still about Jesus. And I think sometimes we get confused because instead of focusing on Jesus, we tend to focus on ourselves. So that Christmas season's season becomes a season of, awe, of gifts and food. And New Year becomes a season of New Year resolution or New Year weight goals or whatever other goals you have. But see, this focus, the focus becomes rather us than Jesus Christ. The season is about Jesus Christ. So I think it's a mistake to think that Christian life is about our redemption, our victory, our prosperity, our. That's the key word. Although Christianity, of course, talks about this, but these are more, you know, bonuses, extras. These are not the main thing. The reason why we have the 27 books of the New Testament, is to tell us who Jesus is. It's all about Jesus. It tells us who Jesus is and what he did for us. The reason why we have 39 books in the Old Testament is to tell us a figuration of what kind of coming king is Jesus, what kind of kingdom is he establishing on earth. That's why we have the Bible to begin with. So think about it. This may be a simple story of Hannah and Samuel but this story prefigures the sort of story 
of Elizabeth and John the Baptist. Think about it. It's another repetition of the story. It's another repetition of the story of Jesus and Mary. If you believe that history repeats itself, you read your Bible and you see it's true. Because in the multivalent of stories, the Bible is repeating stories after stories to tell us and to keep us focused on the one single story that we all have to pay attention to. The story of Jesus. The story of redemption. This is way interesting than Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan's. Have you ever even watched it? It's, uh, it's already in the prime video. But this is way more interesting because this story informs of our past. It also informs us of our present. So the question is, what is God's will today? How do I know what, what God wants me to do? What is God doing in the world? At the end of the passage in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 20, this is what it says. In due time... Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked him from the Lord. The Lord intervened. So the story provides us a glimpse of hope. We are given an insight that somewhere out there, God is working quietly with someone to bring order in the world. This is very interesting. Whenever the apostles would say, we are not the best, we are not the wisest, we are not the greatest, and yet God shows us the 12 of the apostles. I mean, bunch of random guys, fishermen, tax collector, rebels, and yet God shows them to be the pillars of the New Testament church. Why? Because God's ways is different. Of all people from all walks of life, why are we included in the church? Why have we met Jesus at this point in time? Because God must have a reason for this one. These are not random acts of God. And what's interesting is that this is not a secret. So when we ask, what is God's will? What's God trying to do? God is giving us an insight of what he's trying to do. This is a secret. God has declared that justice, peace, wholeness, Redemption are things that he wants or intends to bring into the world through the church. There's no other avenue where God will bring wholeness and redemption but through the church. The story of Hannah and Samuel is a figuration that points us to the ultimate story that culminates in the story of Jesus. Now think about this. Israel may have forgotten her calling but God is working in the lives of faithful individuals like Hannah. Even though the book of Judges say everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, there are still faithful individuals who are still worshiping God. Would you say amen to that? What's interesting is that this story ultimately points us to a nation who pleads and knocks and begs for the ultimate son who will bring the world to order. So the story of Hannah and Samuel, fast forward to the story of the Gospels. We have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All the stories of the Gospels are about the story of Jesus Christ. But what's interesting here is when Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew, in the opening chapter of Matthew, we read the story of Jesus. He was just born, and an angel appeared to Joseph and Mary. And the angel was saying, you have to go to Egypt because Herod is about to kill Jesus. Now, listen to this, Matthew chapter 2. 
Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now watch this. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Whose prophet is this? This is Hosea the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, now we knew that originally, according to Exodus chapter 4, Israel was God's son. So whenever we we read the Bible in the Old Testament about God's son, God's son. It's not Jesus Christ. It's about Israel as the nation. They are God's son. But then Matthew retells the story and spin it in a different way. Matthew might have read Exodus. He might have read Hosea. He might have read also Samuel. And so he spins the story in a different way. And what he means is that the the story of the nation of Israel is fulfilled in the story of Jesus because the nation of Israel failed to do what they're called to do. So Jesus came to fulfill what they're supposed to fulfill. Hannah made the solemn vow to give back Samuel to God. But in the story of John's gospel, it is God who gave the world his son when he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do you see it? There's a spin-off of the story. Although Samuel and Hannah was a story of two individuals, but all the more it points to the story of Jesus Christ and God and how God rules the kingdom. We are called to pay attention to the culmination of the history of mankind. Jesus is the center of the story. The love of God is marked in every pause, in every transition in the Bible. So when you read your Bible, do not just think about Samuel and Hannah. Think about Jesus, because that is the culmination of the story of the Bible. Question is, what does God intend to do after Jesus? What is God's will for the world? How will his kingdom on earth, as it is in heaven, come? Again, this is not a secret. You must know this by now. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Is Jesus trying to build a magnificent third temple? Oh, no. Jesus did not intend to build any physical architecture. He did not intend to build a mega coliseum. He's not building anything architectural. He's building the most magnificent of all creation, mankind. You see, back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, of all creation that God did, at the very end, God said it was very good. But you see, the last creation that God did was Adam and Eve, humankind. The greatest of all creation, of God's creation, is humankind. I've seen once uh, Van Gogh's Star Starry Night in museum in New York. It was mesmerizing. If, if you've seen maybe the Eiffel Tower up close, it's amazing. Amazing. But see, all of these things, all the masterpieces in the world, nothing comes close to the masterpiece of God. When, when Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are God's masterpiece, he was telling us about the church, humankind. See, of all God's creation, day one to day six, of all of God's creation, only humankind was stamped with God's image. Not even the angels have the image of God. We have the image of God. Because we are God's magnificent creation. 
Say amen to that. Even though when you look at the mirror, you don't like yourself, you are made in the image of God. Amen to that. So it's perfectly understandable for Jesus to build his church out of people. Well, some people do not like people, but it is people that God redeemed. It's people that Jesus Christ redeemed. Jesus Christ is building his church one brick at a time from one broken life at a time. And he's doing it from the inside out. He's breathing new life into our souls. If there's any consolation, here's what we believe. God is not done with you yet. Amen? This is all the more reason to be patient with one another. That's what I tell myself whenever my wife and I had a fight. He's, God is not done with her yet. <laughs> I don't tell it because I'm going to get in trouble. But I also tell it to myself. I make mistakes because God is not done with me yet. So I don't try to be hard on myself. See, there's, there's no other way we can put up with each other unless we are patient and loving towards each other because God is not done with us yet. Nobody's perfect, not even in the church. Yes? Nobody's perfect here. Only Jesus is perfect. So God is not done with anyone. But here's the thing. We're asking, how will God do his plan? How, how will his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? I would say there's, there's only plan A and there's no plan B. The church is God's plan A. There's no plan B. When Jesus chose his 12 disciples, that was all the plan. There was no other backup plan. That's it. We are it. It's like, really? <laughs> this is how God will change the world through us? Yes. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's no other plan but us. What I want to do, what I want you to do is to see yourself in the person of Hannah. She understood that her contribution to the kingdom is to bear children, raise the children in the fear of the Lord, and give him back to the Lord. That's Hannah. H how do we do this? How do we do the same thing? See, when Jesus Christ commanded us, he said, go and make disciples. See, making disciples is our spiritual pregnancy. The physical pregnancy is bearing children, making images of us through our children. Making disciples is our spiritual pregnancy, making disciples after the image of us, of Jesus in us. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is how we give spiritual birth. Have you even have a disciple? Anyone has disciples? Everyone is discipling someone. Your children are your disciples first and foremost. But we are also encouraged, just like Hannah, to make disciples of all nations. This is what Jesus said and commissioned his disciples to do. Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Jesus Christ has commanded. So I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of Hannah, knock on heaven's door, plead to God to open your womb, your spiritual womb. Make it your, make it your goal this year. How do we do that? Let's make an individual goals. Let's say, let's pray to God earnestly, we bitterly and say, Lord, I want to disciple someone today. 
I, I want to disciple someone this year. Just one person. You know, one person makes a difference. One person makes a very big difference. This is God's command to us. This is our contribution to the kingdom of God. I want us to see that this church, I want us to see how you can be part of how God will bring new birth into this church. Make it your legacy. Make it how you will be remembered. Pour out your soul to God whenever you pray. And, and this is a, a very interesting but funny thing. When you dare, because when Hannah dared to ask, she was given Samuel. If you pray this, if you ask God, I guarantee you, because this is God's will, there's no going around. I guarantee you, if you pray that you want to disciple someone, I'm definite God will answer your prayer. God will answer your prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the new inspiration today. We are starting off the new year with a different kind of passion, a different kind of excitement, because we know that you are going to do something through us. Father, I pray for those names in our heads right now, the friends that we have, the loved ones that we have, the co-workers that we have. Father, I pray that you will allow us in our hearts and in our souls to make this pregnant so that when we pray for them, we are pleading with you to use us for them so that we can disciple people through you, teach people to obey you. Father, ultimately, we pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Use us. Use us in a way that you want us to be used through you. In Jesus' name.